We continue in our series through uh, Colossians, and uh, start off by asking you the question: How many of you heard of the um, the worship band Hillsong United? Cool, all of you. Really popular uh, worship band, been around for many, many years. However, just recently, one of their longtime worship leaders, Marty Sampson, I don't know if you heard this, uh, declared himself no longer a Christian and has walked away from the Christian faith. Uh, A couple of his comments that he's made on social media include this. He says, time for some real talk, he says. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. He says, like what... Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. He says, all I know is what's true to me right now, and Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I thought, that's just so, it's typical of our postmodern mindset, which says, you know, Christianity, Jesus, the Bible is no longer the absolute truth in the world. What is the absolute truth is whatever I decide it to be. And so, like he says, all I know is what's true to me right now. In a similar way, I don't know if you've heard about Joshua Harris. He was a a prominent pastor for many, many years, uh, known for his book, um, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, uh, where he, uh, a book aimed at helping singles pursue each other in a a godly, pure way. And he too just recently uh, renounced his faith and even apologized for the content in his book. He said this on social media, he says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. He says the biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am no longer a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there right now. I thought this, this was particularly disheartening to me um, I, as, a, as a guy I greatly respected. I enjoyed his sermons. I thought he had a great grasp of the gospel and conveyed it very well. Um, but even you know, bringing it closer to home, I've, I've had a few friends who've done a similar thing. Uh, one particular friend is probably one of the most intelligent guys that I know, incredibly gifted preacher, began struggling with one or two things and then woke up one morning and decided that he was an atheist and has never looked back. Other friends of mine are just kind of swallowed up by their sin, or a particular sin with, with zero desire to repent and, and come back to the Lord and come back to the church. And maybe some of you have experienced something like this with, with family uh, members or, or, or close friend who were seemingly, they, maybe they were seemingly a Christian, but now they've, they've walked away or they've just simply faded away from the faith and from the church. Now, either they just woke up one morning and they just simply changed their beliefs about Jesus, or like I said, maybe they've allowed a a sin to creep in and kind of just envelop them, swallow them, erode their faith, and they want nothing to do with Jesus and the church. And it's heartbreaking, because these are our friends, these are our our family members, these are our, our church family members. And begins to raise questions in us, like, well, were they genuinely born again in the first place? Or in in line with our Colossians series, is Jesus really enough to to save them? Maybe we should be doing more than just simply believing in Jesus to help us cross the line of faith. 
Or maybe Jesus is not enough to keep them saved. Maybe he's enough to, to get them saved, but then it's all on us. The ball's in our court to keep ourselves uh, saved and, and persevering in our faith. And so the great thing about our next portion of Scripture in Colossians is that it helps to answer these questions. So once you grab your Bibles, you can either grab a pew, uh, a pew Bible or a chair, pocket Bible in front of you, or jump onto your app or whatever you might have, or you're welcome to follow on the screen. Well done to the tech team again <laughs> um, for uh, keeping us going. But it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. Here we go. Paul continues and he says, For in him, talking about Jesus, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So I believe this text answers our two questions. Uh, Our two questions, is Jesus enough to save firstly? And secondly, is he enough to to keep us saved? And if you flip over your bulletin, I'll give it straight away. Give it away. There's the answers right there. Uh, With no surprises. Yes, Jesus is enough to save. That's what we're going to look at first. And then lastly, we'll finish off, Jesus is enough to keep us saved. In fact, right at the end, I'll also include a couple of thoughts uh, on friends and family members who have wandered Uh, from the faith, and hopefully that'll be a little bit helpful too. So here we go. Our first answer is yes, Jesus is enough to save. And just to be super clear on that, you don't need anything or anyone else to save you or to reconcile you to God. That's what I mean by save, to reconcile you to your heavenly Father. You don't need the law, which is what the Jewish false teachers were saying. You don't need some fancy esoteric spiritual knowledge, which the Gnostic teachers uh, were, were, were teaching them. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pope. All you need is Jesus himself to reconcile you. But now, imagine these false teachers sitting in this church service, listening to this letter as it's being read out. And as they get to this particular part, I can imagine them scoffing at each other going, well, who does Jesus think he is? What gives him the exclusive right to save everyone, to reconcile everyone to God? What qualifies him? And so Paul preempts us in verse 19. In fact, he's going to give us five reasons why Jesus is enough to save us. He starts off by saying this, verse 19. Look at this. He says, For in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But now last week we were saying... Jesus is preeminent. He's supreme over all things because he's God. But now this kind of makes him sound like, well, at one stage he wasn't God, but now all of a sudden he is God because now he's filled with the fullness of God. So, so what's going on here? So it does get a little bit tricky, but Paul says this in this particular way because the Gnostics believed that anything made up of the flesh was evil and anything spiritual was good. And so therefore, they believed that if Jesus was a man, 
There's just no ways he could have been God. But Paul here very clearly and very cleverly points out that in Jesus' humanity, he was God. He was filled with the fullness of God. Not some of God. No, he wasn't an emanation of God, which is what these Gnostics believed. An emanation is something that comes from the original source, but it's not the fullness of the, the original source. It's, it has some of the makeup of the original source, but it's not the fullness of it. And so what Paul is tackling here is the deity of Jesus. And the deity of Jesus affirms that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Not 50-50, not 80-20, but 100-100. Paul says the fullness of God in Jesus, that is in the man Jesus. And this is essential to the argument as to why Jesus is enough to save us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these two natures of Jesus, the fact that he's 100% God and he's 100% human in his humanity, and see how that qualifies him to be our ultimate savior. So firstly, because Jesus is God, 100% God, he is all-powerful and he cannot be defeated. That means he is the only one who can defeat our sin, death, and the devil. And because he's God, he's the only adequate savior because he has no sinful nature. He is righteousness personified. He is holiness personified. That's what qualifies him to be our savior. And because he is God, we can have assurance that whatever he promises, he will deliver on. And so if he's saying to us, listen, I am the only way to glory, I am the only way to the Father, then we can rest in that promise that he will deliver on that. And because he is God, all people will be accountable to him when he returns to judge the world. Because that's what a God does. He judges, but he is merciful. Not only is he the judge of the world, he's also our savior who has come to save us from that judgment. And Jesus can only be that and do that because he is 100% God. But now on the flip side of the same coin, because Jesus is man, he has experienced the same things that we've experienced. Because he is man, he can identify with us more intimately in what we go through. Because he's man, he, he, came, he has come to our aid as our sympathetic high priest, especially when we come to the ends of our human weakness. When you come to points in your life where you think, I just can't handle this anymore. I, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm drowning in my stress. I'm drowning in my heartache. I'm drowning in my anxiety. Because Jesus is man and your great high priest. He can identify with you and he can help you. He can relate to you. He's not far off and uninvolved. And so we can never complain that God doesn't know what we're going through because he experienced it firsthand. The book of Hebrews tells us very clearly that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Now, you put those two together and you can see why he's our ultimate savior 
why Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. Without Jesus being man, he wouldn't be able to identify with us. Without him being God, he wouldn't be qualified to save us. The next reason why Jesus is enough to save us is because of the scope of his salvation. Now let me set it up like this. It's a terrible illustration, but anyway. Uh, imagine 50 people are, are busy drowning out at Eden Rock. Uh, they've had a wonderful time of snorkeling, and they've been out there for ages. Now they're just super tired. There's just no ways they can get back to the shore. And so I reckon I could jump in and maybe save one. But in the time that I've saved one, my wife probably would have saved all 49 others. The reason why is because she is the superior swimmer. Therefore, her scope to save is far superior than mine. But to look after my ego, if I had to eat 50 slices of chocolate cake in order to save 50 people, I'm practically Superman. So anyway, here's the point. If Jesus is preeminent, like we saw last week, and like Paul's saying here, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, then what would be his scope to save? Have a look at verse 20. And through him, that's Jesus, to reconcile to himself, how many things? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the emphasis here is not so much on what is saved specifically, but like I said, to see the effective range or the power of Jesus to save. Paul says that he has the ability to save across two realms, a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. But then he gets, far, he gets more specific about who he saves and why he had to save. Look at verse 21. He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. He has now saved in his body of flesh by his death. So the you here obviously represents the Colossian born-again believers. It also represents the broader condition of mankind. All of mankind has, has fallen into the state of sinfulness and it has alienated us. It's separated us from God. In fact, he says we are hostile towards God, which is then clearly seen in our immoral activities, our immoral lifestyles. Now, let me tell you a little secret. If you feel bad that you don't appreciate the gospel enough, if you at times like me, you, you, you sat in church and you, or you've been worshiping and you think, you know, I know Jesus died on the cross for me. I know, I know that I was alienated from God and Jesus died on the cross to reconcile me. But I, I just don't feel the weight of that like I should. A couple of tips. Firstly, Never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. It's not a case of being, I'm, I'm too familiar with the gospel. Never stop preaching the gospel to yourself. The more you preach the gospel to yourself, the more God will open your eyes to see and experience and appreciate the gravity of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. Secondly, 
Meditate on the reason why Jesus had to save you. Why did Jesus have to save us? Now let's meditate on just how lost we were, how hopeless a position we were in because of our sin. To truly appreciate the air conditioning in your house, have it break down for a week. And then in the subsequent weeks, meditate on how terrible that week was. I meant you remember that? We're so sticky and, and hot and miserable with each other and we couldn't sleep because of just this oppressive heat. But now, you bask in your AC, right? You glory in the AC. In the same way, think about what it, what it meant to be alienated from God, your Father. That your very mindset, your very world view, the way you processed everything was hostile toward God. Not like, yeah, no, 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 we just, it's, it's just, we just don't see eye to eye on certain things. No, no, Paul says it's everything. Your entire way of being was aggressively opposed to God. And the reason why that still might not sound alarming is because in our minds we don't think we were that bad. But you know what that does? That just exposes how blinded we are by our sin and how blinded we are to see the holiness of God. I mean, you might not have murdered anyone. You might not have stolen anyone. You might not have thought too bad of thoughts towards your, your boss. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying it's the general condition of our minds and our lifestyles that are hostile towards God. And here's the kicker. If we're not even aware of how depraved we are in comparison to a very holy God, then how can we be even aware of ourselves to save ourselves? If we're so blinded by us and so depraved by us, then how can we even be aware that we need saving? And so how paradoxical is this, that the only one who can save us is the one at whom our sin is aimed at? We say it this way, the only one who can save us from our sin is the one in whom we are ultimately sinning against. I mean, who does that? You sin against someone in this world with a worldly mindset, you know, they can, they can just come back right at you. And so we're sinning against the creator of the universe. And he comes and he saves us anyway. Look at how he does this. Verse 22 says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Verse 20 says, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, very often when we read about the sacrifice and the death of Jesus, we, we actually fail to think of what Jesus gave up in order to accomplish that for us. Jesus gave up glory with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. A Trinitarian fellowship of unprecedented glory, joy, and peace to take on human flesh, come to his creation that Paul says is hostile towards him. And then he lives the perfect sinless life before his heavenly father, which would then later be accredited to you and I. And then being the perfect sacrifice for our sins because he's both God and man, he dies this excruciating, humiliating death on the cross for our sins. 
And so you want to see the heart of God the Father and the Son towards a, towards a bunch of sinners? Have a look at this. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you, you want the gospel to have a greater impact in your life? You want to feel the weight of the cross, what Jesus accomplished for you? Then meditate on this verse. And so I want to practice what I preach and so I remember very clearly, in fact, I've got it here in my notes. Wednesday morning, I got to this part in my preparation of this sermon, and I stopped. I said, fine. And so I read Romans 5.8, and then I read it again, and then I prayed through it. And you know what word popped out to me? I mean, I, I, I've, I've read this verse countless times. This is one of my go-to verses when I preach. It's the first time this little word popped out to me. That little word, still. While we were still sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died for us. And Paul's just told us, he's just told the Colossians that our sinful condition was hostile to God. So I'm sitting there in my office going, so while I was still in a hostile place towards God, sinning left, right, and center, not even aware of it, unable to do anything about it anyway, God demonstrated his love for me through what his son went through on the cross in my place. It's not like while you were still sinning, he waited for you to clean up your act. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, through the blood of Jesus, there is now no longer hostility, but peace. Jesus' death on the cross provides the perfect sacrifice once for all. And it deals with not only the penalty of our sin, but it breaks the power of sin over us. Here's what it ultimately accomplished. Look at verse 21 again. He says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, saved in his body of flesh by his death. Here we go. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see that? Jesus died for us to present us before the Father. No longer hostile, no longer enemies of God, but holy, blameless, above reproach. And it's interesting, those three words essentially mean the same thing. So I'm thinking, Paul, why are you repeating yourself? And I think it's to emphasize, I think it's to prove a point to those false teachers in that church that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough to save us. I mean, think about it. What more could you want? What more could you, you need in order to stand before God Almighty one day? Jesus is saying, I've got this. I've got this for you. You're holy. You're blameless. You're above reproach. What more could another philosophy or doctrine or God or deity do to improve upon what Jesus has already accomplished for us? Now, I'm guessing most of us here are, are down with what Jesus has done for us. We're down with the fact that he's, he's enough to save us. And I'm praying that that's the rock-solid foundation of our faith. 
But when things, things get a bit tricky when it comes to this question, is Jesus enough, though, to keep us saved? So Jesus is enough to, to get you across the line of faith, but then is it all up to me to, to stay across the line of faith? Or Jesus is enough to get me into the river, but is it then up, all up to me to stay afloat? And so is our salvation a case of sink or swim? Or does Jesus get us across the line and then he does everything himself to keep us across the line or to keep us afloat? So which, which one is it? Is it 100% on us to persevere in our faith or is it 100% on him to keep us in our salvation? Or is it a 50-50 split? And there are interesting ramifications to these various theories. If it's all on us, then who gets the glory at the end of the day? It's like, Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross. I'm, I'm sure that it was incredibly excruciating, but thank you for getting me through the door. But to be honest, I've kept myself on the other side of the door. I've kept myself on the other side of the line of faith. So let's just, let's just call it a split. You get some of the glory, I get some of the glory. Or if it's all on Jesus to keep us saved, does that mean we can just carry on doing whatever we want to do? And, and if we sin, well, then Jesus, that's on you, because you wanted to do the whole saving thing. You wanted to save me and keep me saved. If I sin, that's your fault, not mine. Or if it's the 50-50 split, we go, well, okay, well, Jesus, um, can you help keep me saved when I'm around my boss? Because that's just really bad. And then, but I'm okay. I can handle my salvation when I'm around my wife, except when we fight. Can you then really jump in in that moment? And then we'll, you know, we'll just call it a 50-50 split. We'll try to figure out how this thing works as we go along. I mean, like, that just doesn't make sense. So last point goes like this. Jesus is enough to keep us saved. But now there is some buts and some ands to that statement. So have a look at verse 22. He says this. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. All right? So that's Jesus is enough to save you. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, now maybe you're thinking, well, Jason, there it's so clear. Yes, Jesus is enough to save us, and then it's all on us to stay saved, to persevere in our faith. Let's just stop right there and have coffee, right? No, A, because I've got the microphone and like to talk. And secondly, we're going to get a little bit nerdy because it's not that simple. See that phrase in verse 23? It says, if indeed you continue in the faith. The way that phrase was constructed in the original Greek means that Paul here has complete confidence. He has complete assurance that they would continue in their faith, that they would persevere in their faith. We could say it like this. Continuing in your faith demonstrates that Jesus has saved you. It demonstrates that you are truly born again. Another way to say it is the truly born-again Christian will continue or will persevere in their faith. And so if we understand it like that, then it sounds like this is the 100% Jesus view, where he not only saves you, but he also keeps you saved. And so yes, we can believe that, but there also comes a but here, also comes an and. The rest of the verse then says this, and this is on us. We are to be stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That, that's squarely our responsibility. 
And that was said in light of these false teachers infiltrating the church going, no, no, you can't just believe in Jesus. You need to do all of this. You need to do all of that. You need to stop doing this and all of that kind of stuff. And Paul's saying, no, no, we need to stay steadfast and not shift from the hope of the gospel. Now, that sounds like it's all our responsibility. That sounds like it's on us to stay saved once Jesus has saved us. So which is it? Is it 100% Jesus or is it 100% us? I'm going to make it worse before we make it better. Look at this. John 10 verse 28, Jesus speaking says this, I give them eternal life. In other words, I'm enough to save you. I'm enough to get you across the line. But then he says this, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so he's saying, I'm enough to keep you saved. He doesn't say, but you know, some will perish. Some will you know, kind of pop out of my hand. No, he says, I, no one will perish. I've got you. He saves and he keeps us saved. But now, what about 1 Corinthians 15 from verses 1 to 2? It says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, which you believe, Right? in which you stand and by which you are being saved. But here comes the condition. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So if you're not holding fast to it, if you're not being steadfast in it, then how can it save you? He's saying, come on, guys. You've, you've, you've got to hold on to the gospel with every fiber of your being. Don't be distracted by this. Don't fall away because of your sin and and make your faith out to be in vain. And so again, which is, is it Jesus or is it all on us? The answer is yes. It's a wonderful political answer, politically correct. It's yes. There is a divine mystery between God's sovereign ability to keep you saved and our, our human responsibility to persevere in our salvation. And there's a, the most incredible verse in the Bible that shows this divine mystery. It doesn't solve the mystery, but it clearly tells us there is a mystery and how it works. Have a look at this. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13 says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's on us. Sunrise, work out your salvation. Live it out, in other words. Demonstrate your salvation. Demonstrate that you've been saved by Jesus. And and he says, do it with, with fear and trembling. In other words, do it with reverence. How? How is that possible? Verse 13 is the secret. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's only possible because God himself is at work within you. That's how you can live it out. That's how you can persevere. That's the mystery at work right there. We can say we are to work out what he's working in us. It's our responsibility to live out or persevere in our salvation, but we can only do that because Jesus is at work within us willing us to do according to his good pleasure, the salvation that he has purchased for us on the cross. And again, I had to stop at this point in my my sermon prep, and I had to tell myself, Jason, just 
This is not a, some theological paper that you're going to present on, on the perseverance of the saints. That would be the, the doctrine. I was thinking, no, this is an amazing truth. This is an amazing truth that can bring us so much peace, so much assurance and confidence to the church. So sunrise, I hope and I pray that you are hanging on to these truths and these promises from Jesus. For some of you, you need to take a lot of heart from the promise that Jesus is enough to save you and he's enough to keep you. That he's got you in his hands. That you will not perish. You ought to hold on to that one. For others of us, maybe we are to feel the weight of taking up our responsibility to persevere then in our faith, to not be swayed by various distractions and philosophies and other deities and religions and, and our sin, to fight off our sin. Like Paul says here, continue stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope in the gospel. And if you continue, listen, if you continue persevering in your faith, it demonstrates, or we can say it is the fruits of Jesus at work within you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But now, just before I finish off, what about your friend? Or what about your family member that has walked away from the faith? that has declared themselves an atheist? What about Marty Sampson? What about Joshua Harris? My first response is this. If they are genuinely born again believers, if they are genuinely born again believers, they've been regenerated by God himself, they will come back to the Lord because Jesus is enough to save and he's enough to keep us saved. Being a genuinely born-again believer doesn't mean that we live the perfect life from the moment Jesus saves us. But, he says, we have been declared holy and above reproach. But now, the process of growing in that holiness begins. Our sanctification begins, which is not a perfect process. We will bump our heads, we will sin, we will trip but the deal is, if you have been genuinely saved, you will get up again. You will repent. They may backslide for a season, but if Jesus is in them to will and to do according to his good pleasure, he will cause them to repent and come back to himself. Secondly, if they never repent, if they never repent, then I can't see how they were genuinely born again because they would make Jesus a liar. Because he has promised that those who he gives eternal life to will not perish. They're in his hands. And if we're saying that he's preeminent over all things, which is what we saw last week, but some lose their salvation, then how can he be preeminent over all things? It makes Jesus out to be a liar. It discredits his word. And finally, this quote, I don't think I put it on the screen, it just sums things up nicely for us. It says, the Bible declares that a true Christian will not live a state of continual unrepentant sin because Jesus is at work within them. 
The Bible also says that anyone who departs the faith is demonstrating that he was never truly a Christian. 1 John 2 verse 19 says that they left us because they were not of us. That of, that ofness refers to your regeneration. They were not regenerated. He says, this quote says, he may be religious, he may have put on a good show, but he was never born again by the power of God. Because Matthew 7 verse 16 says, by their fruit you will recognize them. If we are genuinely born again, by God's power, God working within you, you will begin to display the fruit of God, not the fruit of sin, perpetual sin. Now let me finish off by saying this, especially for those of you who are disheartened, saddened by maybe family members or friends who have walked away from their faith in Jesus. Because, this is our argument, because Jesus is enough to save us and he's enough to keep us saved or to help us persevere in our salvation, then there is always hope. I want you to hear that because there is always hope. If he wasn't, then there would be great cause for concern. I mean, if we had to rely on our own intellect and our own moral ability and strength, we would all fall because we know how fickle our, our moral wills are like. We know how strong temptation is like. And so we would all ultimately fall. And so we cling to promises like this and we cling to them because we trust, that we trust Jesus and we trust his word. So have a look at this and then I'm done. Jude 24, verses, Jude 24 to 25 says this. Now to him who is able... In other words, he is enough. Now to him who, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the, what? The only God. Not a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of that, a little bit of this and that. No, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever, amen. This verse screams hope, sunrise. It screams hope because he says now to him who is able, and he is able because he is enough to save us and he is enough to keep us saved. And because he's enough to save us, to keep us, he then enables us to persevere in our faith. No matter the ups and the downs, because we are ultimately assured that we will never ultimately fall away. That as truly born again Christians, we will one day be presented before our heavenly Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Because your Lord and your Savior is enough. Amen. Won't you pray with me? Jesus, I'm still stumped as to how to thank you that you are all we need. We are, and all we need is, is the faith that you give us to believe that you're enough. And then you've done it all. 
through the cross. You've already declared that we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is what we will hear when we stand before our heavenly Father because you have canceled all of our sin on the cross, past, present, and future. You have justified us. And now because you're in us, working in us, you help us persevere in our salvation. And you know that sin still knocks on our door still tugs at our hearts and we occasionally fall but we thank you that you've forgiven us and that you help us get up again you help us repent you give us the strength and the ability to get up again to keep our eyes on you and to walk towards the goal of seeing you and being with you in glory one day I pray for peace pray for assurance for everyone here who knows you Jesus as their Lord and Savior I pray for those brothers and sisters of ours who have backslidden I pray that you would cause them to repent I pray those who have fallen away that you would open their eyes and you would save them for the first time that they would genuinely see you for the first time and come back come back to your church come back into your loving arms Because you're enough, there is always, always hope. We pray this in Jesus' name.